Please turn with me in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. On Wednesday night, we are going through the Bible, verse by verse and chapter by chapter. And I think um, by the time I'm 55, we hope to be finished with the scriptures. So let's pray together. As we go to prayer, I was thinking about Hebrews 4. At the end of the chapter there, it says to come boldly to the throne room of grace, to to find grace and help uh, in time of need. And I'm sure that there are challenges and difficulties in your life. I think on this side of heaven, there's lots of uh, those challenges and difficulties. And so let's go spend some time there right now. Let's enter into the Lord's presence, into that throne room of grace. And whatever you need help with and grace and strength, let's meet with the Lord. So let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you that you're a high priest, that you ever lived to make intercession for us, that you know us, you know our joys and our sorrows and our struggles, and we want to take some time to just come and enter into your throne room of grace. Thank you that it's open access because of your blood and resurrection, so we present before you our praise and our worship. You're so good to us. Father, we adore you. We also present our needs before you, our brokenness, our weakness before you, God. In those areas that are heavy upon your heart and those needs that you have, lift those up to the Lord. Thank you, God, that you respond by your grace and so we're asking in faith in the name of Jesus Lord that you would bless by the power of your grace Lord we think of our missionaries tonight that are throughout different parts of the world we pray you'd strengthen them and bless them we pray for the Nollies as they're preparing to go to Uganda here in a few months that you would strengthen them and bless them give them everything that they need we lift up the youth to you tonight God would you bless them and minister to them and children's ministry and Awana as they're wrapping up their semester. God, would you bless them and encourage them in Jesus' name. Amen. So next Wednesday, May 6th, is going to be a little different. We're having Awana Awards right here in the sanctuary. And you're thinking, well, maybe that's a good night to stay home if you don't have young kids. And I encourage you to come out because it's a chance to support them. They've been working all year, and so they'll get an award of recognition. And it's pretty fun to see them up here on this stage. I promise you it'll provide you a little bit of entertainment. Uh, but So please come out and join us next week, uh, May 6th, for that. As we get into 1 Corinthians, this book is very colorful. There's a lot in 1 and 2 Corinthians. Paul had gone to Corinth on his second missionary journey in Acts chapter 18. You may remember that as we were studying the book of Acts. This early church, as you might expect, starts having some problems and some difficulties. And 1 Corinthians is Paul writing back to this church, trying to set this church back in order. There's really three areas, three things to to look at in this book. And first we see division, and that's what we'll find tonight. It's the three Ds of 1 Corinthians. There's division that has to be dealt with, and then there's all kinds of disorder inside of the church of Corinth. There's sexual sin that's being 
undealt with. And so Paul has to write to this church and say, okay, I want to try to put this back into proper order. And then we find difficulties as we get into the second half of the book. So each epistle is written for different reasons. And this epistle is written because there's problems. Now, whoever thought there'd be problems in church? That's surprising, right? A lot of times we want to get back to the first century church, which is good because we want to get back to the book of Acts and back to those things that were core. But many times when people look at the book of Acts, they think there were no problems, that there were no no difficulties. And in fact, when you read the book of Acts and you read the epistles and you study this period, you find that very quickly there were problems and difficulties. But what we find is Jesus never gives up on his church. I mean, here we are almost 2,000 years later, and we still have problems, but Christ is still faithful to build his church. So I think this gives us a, a great example that God doesn't give up on us. And also, don't give up on the church collectively when there's problems and difficulties. And I'm speaking to a larger degree than just even Rocky Mountain Calvary. As you mature in your relationship with the Lord, you're going to find that sinners are gathered together to worship Jesus Christ. And we still do sin. And church will disappoint you. People in the church, church leadership will disappoint you. And keep your eyes on Jesus Christ and look for God to do a work in the midst of that church. Because Paul loves these people and he's saying, I'm not going to give up on them. I'm going to write to them and go to this great length to try to set things in order. And it's a great example of God's faithfulness and our attitude towards the church as well. As we get into these first few verses, we're going to look at some of the background, and then we're going to hopefully, Lord willing, cover the first chapter tonight. So this is verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 1. Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother. If you've been studying with us on Wednesday nights, you're well familiar with Paul through the book of Acts and also as he wrote the book of Romans. But just a quick review if you're new to our Wednesday night study is this was Saul, the persecutor of the church, that God saved, that God transformed. He went from persecutor to pastor to evangelist to missionary and he introduces himself, Paul, called to be an apostle. If you study his epistles, the way that he introduces himself puts the tone of the letter. If he says that he's an apostle of Jesus Christ, he's emphasizing the position that God has given to him, and you know he's going to be dealing with a little bit more difficult subjects. He's just gently reminding him, this is who God has called me to be. Apostle means sent out. And he says, I've been sent out of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has sent me to do this through the will of God. He knew what he was doing was because he was called by God. This was God's will. And that's important in our lives as well, is lay hold of God's will and then don't turn back. Sometimes there's difficulties, sometimes there's questionings, often, but rest in knowing that this is God's will. He has a travel companion, Sosthenes, our brother. This is who was with him at this time when he's writing this letter. We don't know a lot about Sosthenes. In Acts chapter 18, we do find that there was a man who was the ruler of the synagogue named Sosthenes, and he went to the Greeks complaining about Paul. Their response was, well, if he's broken some laws, let me know. Great, I'll deal with it. Otherwise, if you guys are arguing over the scriptures, you deal with it. Then the Greeks came and beat up Sosthenes, almost saying, you're complaining, we're going to put you into subjection. And it's possible that then 
he became saved and ultimately became a travel companion of Paul. If that's the case, he's got an amazing testimony of God working in his life, but really we don't know because there could have been a lot of guys named Sosthenes, like there's a lot of guys named Dan and a lot of guys named Joe, and so it'd be cool if it was the same Sosthenes, but we don't know. In verse two, now we know who wrote the letter, now we know who's receiving the letter. It's always important to keep that in mind when you're studying To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who are in every place who call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. The church of God. The church isn't the building, it's God's people. The word literally means called out ones or separated ones. It's those that are called out of the world to be together as God's people. So there's a church in Corinth that Paul is writing to. Now this city of Corinth, as it was quite a sinful city, lots happening here in Corinth, this city in Greece. History is filled with this city. It was known for gross materialism and sexual immorality. One of the first references is by Homer of Corinth, and he commented on the wealth and said it was connected to immorality. Plato referred to a prostitute at this time as a Corinthian girl. So that's how bad the city of Corinth was, is when you would refer to a prostitute, you would refer to that prostitute as a Corinthian girl. And the setter of Corinth was the temple of Aphrodite, And we find that there was temple prostitutes, thousands of temple prostitutes there. There was a saying, not for every man is the voyage of Corinth. So that was the warning. So this is kind of the equivalent of like, be careful if you go to Las Vegas. You know, Sin City. This was the the Sin City of the day. I think there's a lot of parallels between the culture of Corinth and our culture today. Also, not only was there materialism and sexual immorality, but there was great rhetoric, logic, and philosophy. The Greeks were known for being intellectuals. They led to study. They led to kick around philosophy and logic and rhetoric. And that's much of what we find in our society today. And I want you to really keep this in mind as we go to the end of chapter one. Here's a city that many of us would probably not want to go to. We wouldn't want to raise our kids there. Totally pagan, totally hedonistic. Paul goes to Corinth and he's going to review how he came to Corinth. And he came preaching the cross of Jesus Christ. And the cross isn't any less powerful today. Amen? Amen. And a lot of times I think we're looking around at our society and we're, is there any answers? Is there any hope? How do I respond to the gross materialism? the hedonism, the sexual immorality, the chaos that's happening around us, it's the cross of Jesus Christ. So there was hope for Corinth because of a resurrected savior. There's hope for our culture, our society because of a resurrected savior. We also learn in this introduction that they're sanctified, which means they're set apart for for holiness. They needed to be reminded of that, that they belong to the Lord. They're called to be saints, This isn't saints in the terms of of how some would think if you live a really holy life and then the church gets together and decides then you're Saint Nick and you're Saint Patrick and you're Saint Bernard. (laughs) 
that's not the biblical definition of saints. As you read the New Testament, it's those who are in Christ are referred to as saints. They're reminded that they're sanctified. They're reminded that they're saved. That they're also with all of those who call upon the name of Jesus Christ. Go into verse three. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. As you look at this, Paul loves to use this phrase in his introductions, and grace is always before peace. Never will you find peace before grace. Because when we know the grace of God, then we can know the peace of God. If we're approaching God on our works, if we're trusting our works for peace with God, we'll always be in a place where there's the absence of peace. But when we know God's grace, his unearned, undeserved, unmerited favor, The blood of Jesus flows into our lives that we have peace with God and we have the peace of God. And if God's grace is for salvation, it's also for the situations that we're going through tonight, the the weights that we're carrying upon our shoulders. We rest in the truth of God's grace. We walk in God's grace. And then there's the result of God's peace. Grace was also the Greek greeting. And peace, shalom, was the Hebrew greeting. And you would have Hebrews and Greeks gathered together. This is a great way to greet people, grace and peace. And where does this grace and peace come from? It comes from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the source of the grace. He's the source of the peace. Verse four and five is awesome. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus that you were enriched and everything by him in all utterance and knowledge. The church of Corinth is a mess. Sexual immorality to a point where a guy is with his stepmom in a sexual relationship and the church is condoning it. When they would get together for a communion, it became this crazy party where people were more concerned about how much food they could eat than remembering the broken body of Jesus Christ. So Paul has to write to them and say, okay, this is the way we do communion. If you need to eat, make sure you eat at home. That's not the purpose for coming together for communion. They were using the gifts of the spirit in a way that was out of order. So there wasn't edification. So tongues was happening without interpretation. And maybe someone was trying to teach the word and someone else was trying to sing a song. And Paul has to write and say, hey, look, God's not an author of confusion. He does things in decency and in order. I mean, it's just a complete mess as you read through this book. They're fighting with each other. I'm of this leader and I'm of that leader and they're divided. And how does Paul start his introduction? You stinking knuckleheads, get your act together, you know? That's not how he does it. He's like, I'm so thankful for you guys. (laughs) And it's genuine. It's genuine. And he's thankful for the grace that God has given to them and how Christ has enriched their life. You can always find something to be thankful for in the life of a believer. Sometimes we have to look harder for it, but there's always something to encourage them on. There's always something to commend them in, to genuinely be be thankful. And this is a good attitude to have before entering into confrontation. Paul's right in confronting. He needs to confront This is exactly what God wants him to do, but there's love first, there's gratitude first, and he brings that out first. Before you rush into a confrontation, I have to be reminded of this, is take some time to think about, what is this person doing well? What am I thankful for in their lives where I see Christ in them? Verse six, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of 
of our Lord Jesus Christ. He wants this church to come to their fullest potential. What he sees is they're coming short of the gifts that God has given to them. Isn't that a wonderful prayer for our lives and our families in this church body, Rocky Mountain Calvary? God's really blessed us. He's put us right in the center of our city. He's blessed us with this facility. He's blessed us with one another way more than we deserve. It's a testimony of God's grace. And we don't want to come short of any gift that he's given to us. We want to walk through the power of his, his Holy Spirit. I think it's a great, great prayer. And then eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. I was reminded this week as I was watching the news, I think it was Sunday going into Monday, we had the big earthquake in Nepal. Then all of the things that are taking place in Baltimore and the riots and the unrest that, that is there. If you take some time to read Matthew 24, both are addressed as signs of the times, pointing to the second coming of Jesus Christ, that there'd be more and more earthquakes coming to Jesus Christ, more and more unrest until coming to, to Jesus Christ. And so we see these things happening and hopefully it should cause us to go, Jesus, I can't wait for you to return. Verse eight, who will also confirm you to the end, Jesus is gonna be faithful to them to the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul doesn't want them to come short of any gift, but he also wants them to be blameless when Christ returns. He's preparing this church for Christ's return. That's his heart, and that's the reason that he's gonna confront these things. Verse nine, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. If you're struggling, God's gonna be faithful in your life. Please remember that. Also, if you're dealing with other believers that are struggling, God's gonna be faithful in their life. Paul declares the, the faithfulness of God as he's working through this situation. Then he jumps right into it. After nine verses of introduction, he starts dealing with the correction and he starts with division. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing and there be no division among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. What we'll find in the next verse is they're breaking up into little cliques and little groups. And they're identifying with one particular leader inside of the church. And then they're starting to have rivalries with, with each other. And the body of Christ is being divided. And so Paul addresses this and he says, be on the same page. Speak the same thing. Don't allow there to be any divisions among you. Be perfectly joined together. When the body of Christ is divided... Who bleeds? It's Christ. It's his body. So on issues of truth, there should be division. Not all unity is true unity. Unity is inside of who Jesus Christ is and the truth of scriptures. So we should never compromise who Christ is and the truth of scripture. So this isn't unity at the sake of throwing out Christ and throwing out scripture. But then, if it isn't a truth issue, and it's not an issue about the identity of Jesus Christ, we shouldn't be dividing over it. Now, what's Satan's game plan for every family, every church, every relationship with believers? It's very simple, divide and conquer. That's what he's gonna do. He's gonna try to get in between husband and wife parents and kids. He's going to try to divide up a church because once we're divided, 
then the body of Jesus Christ bleeds. So look at how this entered into the mindset of the church of Corinth. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. I like how Paul's just honest. He's like, I was talking with Chloe the other day and asking her how the church of Corinth was doing. And yeah, she told me, you guys are fighting like cats and dogs. He just puts it out there. This information came, came from Chloe. There's no secrets. There's none of this underhanded gamemanship like, a little birdie came and told me that you guys aren't getting along and it adds all this weird awkwardness to, to the situation. He's just like, hey, here's the information. This is how I heard it. This is what's going on. And so, well, let's deal with it. There's contentions among you. There's, there's fighting that, that's happening inside a, of the church. Verse 12, now I say this, that each of you says, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, or I'm of Cephas, which is Peter, or I am of Christ. What are they doing? At the very core of these statements is they're identifying with a leader instead of identifying with Christ. I am. I am of. No, I want to be of Jesus Christ. So here's some of the divisions. I'm of Paul. He's a very wonderful, charismatic leader that God is using. And so some people say, well, I identify with Paul. He's, he's my pastor. I'm Paulinian. I'm of the, the camp of Paul. And others are like, well, I'm of the camp of Apollos. We go back to the book of Acts, and Paul was the one who came alongside Apollos through the ministry of Priscilla and Aquila. God used Paul with Priscilla and Aquila, and then they came alongside Apollos. And Apollos was a very articulate man. I love the way Apollos preaches. I'm of a, Apollos. And others are like, well, I'm of Peter. I mean, his name means rock. How cool is that? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm with that guy. And he's honest and transparent and always sticking his foot in his mouth. I can really relate to him. I don't really get into the deep theology of the Apostle Paul. Yeah, I'm, I'm, of, I'm of Peter. And if, if you're not of Peter, then we can't hang out and we can't spend time together. And then there's those that are just like, you know what? Well, I'm of Jesus Christ to the exclusion of being part of the body. This, this isn't being of Jesus Christ in the appropriate way. This is I'm of Jesus Christ in a prideful way. It's just me and Jesus and I don't need to spend time with the body of Christ. And their hyper-spiritual attitude was actually cutting them off from the body. Because if I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, then what? I'm gonna care about the body. I'm gonna care about loving people. I'm gonna be connected to people. So do we see this inside of the church today as a whole? I think that we do, and we need to be very careful, is probably more than prior generations, pastors have a lot of avenues for communication. And I think it's good, and I think those avenues should be used for God's glory. What are some of those avenues? The radio, TV, internet, Facebook, Twitter, blogs. It, we, there's a lot of opportunities to get God's message out. Writing books, podcasts, the list just goes on and on and on. And before long, we can get attached to a personality and we start following a particular person. And all of a sudden that person is where we find our identity. And we're inside of this camp and, and this ideology. And before we know it, we're following that person instead of Jesus Christ. And you never want to follow a person. 
You never want to follow a pastor. You want to follow Jesus Christ. Amen? Because every pastor is fallen. We're sinful. We're going to let you down. We're going to lead you astray. Your eyes have to be upon Jesus Christ. Pastors come and go. It's intentional. It's by God's design so that you're not a disciple of a particular pastor. You're not a disciple of a particular movement. You're committed to Jesus Christ. I've heard some people say things like, well, when I bleed, I bleed a particular church or a particular movement. And I'm like, oh, that grieves my heart. When I bleed, I bleed selfishness, if I'm quite honest. That's, that's what comes out. But maybe by God's grace, if I were to bleed out something, it would hopefully be Jesus Christ. That's worth bleeding out for. But our loyalties to Christ, not to a particular movement. So maybe that's entered into your heart and mind a little bit. How would you know? How would you know? Maybe if all of your time is filled with reading books and not reading God's word, by all means, read books, but make sure you've got a healthy diet of God's word. If all of your time is listening to sermons, but not reading God's word, put the priority first of God's word. Another way to test it is how do you do in hanging out with people that are from other churches or other movements, you know? Do we get all uncomfortable because, oh, they don't go to Rocky Mountain Calvary. You know, I'm not sure if I can hang out with them. That makes me really nervous. And I'm of Calvary Chapel. I'm of Rocky Mountain Calvary. I'm of the First Baptists, you know. I'm of, and oh, I can't hang out with them over there. Well, why not? We're all part of the body of Christ. If we agree on the word, we agree on Jesus Christ. Some of our methodology may be different. But God raises up different types of churches inside of a community to reach all different kinds of people, right? God doesn't want all of the churches to be like Rocky Mountain Calvary. He doesn't want us to be like every other church. He wants to call a group of people for his glory, but then we can be able to fellowship together. So this is an important reminder for us as well. We're followers of Jesus Christ. We're disciples of, of Jesus Christ. And inside of that discipleship, then there can be a unity inside of the scriptures and of Jesus Christ. It's very subtle. It's very subtle. It just kind of creeps in there before you know it. I grew up in a wonderful church, a wonderful pastor. It's a great, great man. So thankful for him in my life. Very influential. And what do you know? When I'm in high school wanting to be a pastor, is he wore Birkenstocks. It's Southern Oregon. So guess what? I got a pair of Birkenstocks. He had a particular Bible that was awesome. So guess what? I got that exact same Bible. He had a leather cover. So I got a leather, leather cover. He'd kind of put it under like this and kind of walk around like this. And he was a big guy and a shot putter. And I kind of tried that for a little while, 14, you know, <laughs> kind of walking around like this. And well, it didn't work very well for me, right? And before you know it, you can start to go, man, am I following Christ? Am I following this man? And that was never his heart. His heart was all, always to point me to Jesus Christ. But as I was growing in my maturity and being young in the Lord, I kind of woke up one day and said, oh, I, I see what I'm doing here. And that's exactly what the church of Corinth was doing as well. Verse 13, is Christ divided? 
Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Great question. Is Jesus divided? So why do we divide the body of Christ? Was Paul crucified for you? Was a leader that we're following other than Jesus Christ, a leader that we're putting on a pedestal, was that leader crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? No, you're baptized, you're immersed in the name of Jesus Christ. You may have noticed, you may not have noticed, we don't have official membership here at Rocky Mountain Calvary. And you may be saying, I don't even know what membership is. Or you may be coming from a church where that's the background. There's nothing wrong with membership. It goes something like this, is you join a particular church and you say, I'm committing to this church. You agree with it doctrinally, agree to be involved, and you become a member. Now, why do we not have membership? Is because our desire is, and the way that we feel led, is we want you to associate with the body of Christ as a whole, where you see yourself as a member of the body collectively, not just a member of this individual body. Is there anything wrong with membership? Absolutely not. It's just what the Lord has placed upon our hearts. I think it is healthy to get to a place in a particular fellowship where you go, this is my home, I'm committed here, I'm gonna serve here, but we trust that the Holy Spirit's doing that in and through your life. And so the next question is, if there isn't membership, then can there be church discipline? Absolutely. Because if you come here, we get to know you, you get to know us, and we're not going around sin sniffing. We've got too much to do. We want to get the message of Jesus Christ out. But if God busts you, you know, if your wife comes to us and says, my husband's a believer and he lives in adultery, he doesn't want to repent, then of course the pastors of the church, the elders of the church are going to meet with you and walk you through the process of, of church discipline. Because just because we don't have official membership doesn't mean that you're not a part of the body of Christ. It's our heart to see the body of Christ unified. In verse 14, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I should be baptized in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanas. Besides, I do not know whether I've baptized any. Paul says, I'm glad I didn't baptize a bunch of people in Corinth because it may have just made the issue worse. Verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with the wisdom of words, lest the cross of Jesus Christ should be made of no effect. Paul knew what God was calling him to. His primary call wasn't to stay and baptize, but it was to go and to preach the gospel to those that didn't know Christ. A missionary, an evangelist, a pioneer. So he says, when I came to Corinth, I didn't come with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ be made of no effect. And we get into this wonderful section of the power of the cross and God's calling upon our lives. You would think if you were going to a highly intellectual city that there would be a temptation to say, I have to have a wonderful intellectual argument. Don't you think? If you were going to a university to talk to university students that didn't believe in God and didn't believe in Christ, there would be the temptation to go, well, I need to come in with man's wisdom. And Paul, he says, I'm coming to you, not in man's wisdom, but I'm going to make sure that I articulate the message of the cross. Because he understands God sending his son is the testimony of God. That's the message of scripture from Genesis to Revelation, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Sometimes our abilities 
actually inhibit the power of God from being displayed. Because we're so concerned with coming in talent, so concerned with coming with ooh and awe and having the perfect illustration that we forget that the power is not in our words, but it's in the power of the gospel. It's in the power of the cross. If you're sharing with someone who doesn't know Christ, a family member, a friend, you might be kicking yourself going, did I say it right? Did I have enough persuasive words? Did you tell them the cross? Did you tell them of God's love? Did you tell them of Christ's death and resurrection? That's where the power is. The power is not in the perfect presentation. And Paul understood this and he says, I'm not gonna come with the wisdom of men. I'm gonna come sharing the cross. And then he begins to elaborate on the cross. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. There's nothing more dear to us as God's children than Jesus dying upon the cross for us. I mean, that's what rescued my heart to Jesus, is when I came to understand that he died for me while I was yet a sinner. We're here tonight because of the cross, of what Jesus did upon the cross. We're saved by his death and his resurrection. But to those who don't know Jesus, they laugh at the cross, don't they? They make fun of the cross. They belittle the cross. It's foolishness to those who are perishing. Verse 19, for it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. And isn't that true? God destroys the wisdom of men, but then he brings to nothing the understanding of, of the prudent. And we'll continue on with this. He says, where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolishness the wisdom of this world? Not everything in the act, academic world is absolutely foolishness, but there is a lot of foolishness in the academic world from God's perspective, isn't there? You pay a whole lot of money to hear a lot of really educated people tell you that God doesn't exist. And then from God's perspective, he asks this question to that community. Where's the wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the disputer of this age? Where's the one who is educated in philosophy? Hasn't God made foolishness the wisdom of, of this world? In verse 21, for since the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom didn't know God. Going on into, continuing on into verse 21, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. Paul understands that the Jews would stumble at the cross of Jesus Christ. He also understood that the Greeks would look at the cross as absolute foolishness, but it didn't prevent him from coming and preaching the cross because there would always be those who are called, verse 24, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So again, we picture this city of Corinth, materialism, sexual immorality, education, philosophy, intellectualism. How do you reach a city like that? 
How do you go into Boulder, Colorado and see God do a breakthrough through Boulder, Colorado? How does this happen? Is, is there any hope? Is there any hope for Doherty High School right, right down the street? UCCS up, up the hill? Colorado College down, downtown? And Paul says, yeah, I came in. I cared for you. I loved you. I preached Jesus Christ and him crucified. I declared this is the message of God, that God loves you. He sent his son for you. He died for you. He rose again. And sometimes I think even inside of the church, we go, that wouldn't work. You got to do something else. You got to have something else. You got to be something else. You got to have this incredible argument. You got to have this great rap down. You got to have all these resources. And Paul didn't have all that. He came in as a humble man, a broken man that knew the power of the cross in his own life and he shared it, and there were some who were called unto salvation. I've been really kind of surprised and and blessed. Uh, Calvary Chapel Aurora owns a radio station here in the Springs in Denver. It's called Grace FM, and here in the Springs, it's 101.7, and Pastor Ed asked me if I would do a little call-in show on Fridays from four to five. I'm not doing it this Friday because of the men's retreat. I'm gonna do it on Thursday afternoon, and I kind of have this opinion about radio that nobody's listening to radio anymore. And Ed and I have even had these conversations like, why would you invest so much in, in radio when there's so much access to the internet and podcasts and things are going, going this direction? And a lot of the callers have been brand new believers that God has saved out of some really radical, crazy paths. I got a call this last Friday of a young guy that says, I just, I really feel God calling me back to him. I don't have a Bible. I'm gonna go get one. Where should I start reading? Like that's a pastor's dream right there. That's, that's why we get up in the morning is for that question right there. So I just got to, to share with him. And, uh, and I can share these stories because they're on the radio for the whole world to hear. You know, it's not like my office. If, I, if you come in my office, I'm tempted to tell everyone, but I don't. (laughs) So this next guy calls in and he says, you know, I was a believer. I walked away from the Lord. I got into some heavy drugs, some alcohol. I left my wife. I'm with a woman who's not my wife. We're living together. We have a baby. My wife is now dying in hospice. And I wake up every day feeling convicted. I was at work today met another believer, and the last thing this believer said to me was, follow your convictions. It's like, what does that mean to follow my convictions? And in the midst of that conversation, I really felt the Lord was calling him to be a man of God. And I said, I think God's speaking to you that you need to follow his call upon upon your life. And that's what your friend was speaking to you you at work. And really felt the spirit beginning to work into his heart and his mind. And what it reminded me of is the power of the cross and the power of God. See, God created us to be in relationship with him. So do you think that he's bigger than sexual immorality? Absolutely. Do you think he's bigger than this intellectualism that's permeated our society today? Absolutely. 
Do you think he's bigger than the holes that we dig ourselves even in as believers when we walk away from the Lord? Absolutely. And there's power in the cross. There's power in God's love. And there's no sin that's greater than the depths of his death and his resurrection. And we get to share it with people. And there's a hunger there that the enemy doesn't want us to see. Why was I surprised? Because I'm thinking, well, you know, people aren't going to call in and they're going to just call in with these crazy questions like, did Adam have a belly button? Like, I don't know, who cares, you know? So what if he did or what if he didn't? Like, does that really, really matter? And here people are pouring out their lives and their brokenness and they're looking for the blood of Jesus and the, and the power of the cross. I would love tonight if we could take everybody's story that's here in the sanctuary and how the cross of Jesus Christ has impacted them. You don't have to be an expert on everything. You don't have to have the rap figured out of how to answer every question. Do you know the cross? Do you know the gospel? Do you know what it's done in your life? That's what you come in and that's what, what you share. It's the power of God. We go on into verse 25. It says, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. What do you want to go with? I want to go with the wisdom of God because it says that God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So if the world thinks that the cross is weak, then I want to go in the strength of the cross. Verse 26 through 31 speaks of our calling. It says, for you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. What Paul is saying here is according to the flesh, it's not many that are mighty, many that are noble that are called. Have you noticed through scripture that God calls the least qualified and then equips him for their glory. The whole story of David killing Goliath was because he was the least qualified and God received the most glory from a little shepherd boy stepping out with a slingshot and a few rocks. It wasn't because he was mighty. It's because he was, he was weak. Moses being called by God to rescue the children of Israel. At this point in his life, he was a nobody in the wilderness. He'd committed murder. He'd ended someone's life. Churches weren't calling Moses saying, would you like to be our next lead pastor? Why does God do that? Because it says God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. Sometimes God does call the mighty. Sometimes he does call the noble. But many times he calls the weak and the broken to put to shame those that are mighty. Maybe you're thinking that your weakness disqualifies you from the call of God. Your weakness as what actually qualifies you. <laughs> A lot of times our weakness causes us to want to run away from God's calling. I, I can't share with them. My life's not perfect. I can't serve in the youth ministry. I, I fall short. I could never get up and talk in front of people. I, I stutter with my words or I'm not a good reader. I'm not articulate. I could never lead worship. I, I can't sing on key. And the Lord's saying, I want you to do this. Why? Because he equips the called. 
He takes the weak and fills them with their spirit and uses them according to, to God's glory. In verse 28, in the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. God will break us down to where we are very aware of our own weakness, to where when he pours his grace through and he pours the message of the cross through, we understand this is the Lord. This is not me. This isn't my talent. This isn't my ability. It's not my hard work. This is the grace of God. I'm a broken vessel that God has saved and he's the one that receives the glory. And we know from scripture, God won't share the glory. If there's an individual or a group of people that are saying we wanna be recognized, we want people to think well of us, God's not gonna move through that. He's looking for broken people that are willing to give glory to the proper place and aspire it to the Lord. But if him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That is, as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. So the emphasis is not even upon our weaknesses or our strengths, but it's who we are in Christ Jesus. In him, in him, we are righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. We're able to reach out in confidence because of who Jesus Christ is. Our church has been blessed to be a part of a movement of churches called Calvary Chapel, and we don't associate with Calvary Chapel to the point of not associating with other churches. Hopefully, we're not making the same mistake as the the Church of Corinth to say that we're of Calvary Chapel. You maybe have come here from years, and you're saying, I didn't know that we were a part of Calvary Chapel. And what it is, is it's non-denominational churches that are led by local leadership, that have a similar philosophy of teaching God's word and God's grace. And our roots in our history is really 1 Corinthians chapter one, because what happened in the Jesus movement in the 60s and 70s is a bunch of hippies that were doing drugs and partying and living a lifestyle that was completely contrary to the Lord. God saved, they radically lived for Jesus Christ, and they went out and they start churches. They hadn't gone to seminary, Some of them afterwards ended up going to seminary, nothing wrong with seminary. They'd been touched with the love of Jesus Christ, the power of the cross, and went out in the confidence of God's power and of God's might, and God moved. And that's a part of our history that I don't ever want to lose sight of when it comes to how we practically operate in the sense of we desire to be a church where God saves broken sinners, And as God saves broken sinners, that you can go out and be equipped through the power of Jesus Christ to reach people that don't know the Lord. So if you're sitting here and you're thinking, you know what, this is what my life was like before I came to know Christ, can God use me? Absolutely yes. And we believe that because of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Maybe you're sitting here tonight and you're saying, currently, tonight, my life is a mess. I came to this Bible study because There's a void in my life. There's an emptiness. I'm filled with depression. I am living in sexual immorality. Drugs and alcohol do have control of my life. Jesus died for you. And the power of the cross, his death and his resurrection, run to Christ. If you don't know him, 
You've never asked him to be your Lord and Savior. It tells us that he stands at the door and knocks. Jesus is knocking upon the door of your life saying, I want to save you. Will you turn to me and receive my, my forgiveness? Maybe you don't come from one of those backgrounds. Maybe your background is not one of, of drugs and alcohol and this, this crazy life. I'm here to tell you, you need that same grace. And, and that same grace is what equips you and calls you and it, it allows you to go forth in ministry. It's not if you had a background that was more stable that somehow you're more equipped for ministry. We all need the grace of God. And it's through the grace of God that we go forth. As we've been praying as a pastoral staff the last six months for our church, we really believe that where God is leading us in this next season is where he is going to call us through our weakness. That his strength is gonna be made perfect in our weakness. Not through our strength, not through our ability, not through our organization, but through an understanding of God, I'm broken. I need your grace. I need your strength. And stepping out in the confidence of him. When I first started lead pastoring, it was June 1st, 2005. It'll be 10 years here in a few weeks. The first book that I taught through at Rocky Mountain Calvary was 1 Corinthians on Saturday mornings and, and Sundays. We just finished Romans and we went into 1 Corinthians. It was 10 years ago. And I've got to tell you, now after 10 years, I feel more weak than I ever have. I felt really weak at 27. If there was only any confidence, it was the confidence of the cross. I was literally standing reading through this chapter like this, <laughs> you know? The first weekend when it came to the 11 o'clock service, there was about, I don't know, somewhere between 20 to 40 people that just protested with their feet that I was the new pastor, you know? They weren't going to use the restroom or they didn't get a phone call. They were just like, all right, I'm gonna give this guy about 15 minutes. And they saw my knees shaking, my voice quivering. They're like, okay, I'm out of here. And then as soon as one person stood up, they confirmed about what everybody else was thinking. They got up and they just marched out. What do you do in that moment? You just keep preaching. That's what you do. And you'd think after 10 years of ministry, and I've learned a lot, and it's easier to teach the word, but I'm more aware of my weakness now than I was then. And I think you can relate. You know, you look back on your life and you go, man, I've been walking with the Lord for 20 years. It seems the closer you get to Christ, the more that God shows you your own weakness. And thankfully, by God's grace, I'm not saying that my life is in rebellion. I'm just saying I come to you bringing the word tonight knowing one thing, Jesus Christ and him crucified. I don't have a crazy background. God was very gracious to get a hold of my life at 14. But my confidence is the grace of God and the strength of God's word. I've never been to seminary. I went to a two-year non-accredited Bible college. A lot of times people ask me, what seminary did you go to? I've never been to one. I, you know, I have a non-accredited associate's degree from Calvary Chapel Bible College. And I say this for one reason, and I hopefully that Jesus Christ is glorified. Because some of you are sitting out here, you're thinking, I need to go get a degree before I could ever pastor. I have got to go get seminary before God could, could ever use me. My life is too broken. 
I don't have this together. I don't have that together. The reason that I can get up here and teach God's word is one thing, and it's the grace of God. I come not based on my preparation, my education, my prayer life. I come on this. I know that God is good, and he wants to touch and work in people's lives. And I think if we approach our calling that way, we don't look at ourselves. We look at who Christ is. We go, God, I know your heart. You love people. You die for people. You want them to be in your kingdom. So I'm going to start taking steps of faith out of my weakness. I'm going to start taking steps of faith based upon who you are. And then we're able to rejoice in the message of the cross. It seems as believers and as a church, it's easy to get things really complicated over time. It's become so complex. What do we do? What's the answer? What's the answer in my marriage? What's the answer in my relationship with kids? What's my answer in the workplace? What ministry should we do? It's Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's the answer. God loves you. He died for you. He rose again. He saved you. He lives inside of you. Look to the cross. Stand in the cross. Rest in, in the cross. And thankfully, we get to be a group of broken people that are saved by God's grace, that he uses by his grace, that hopefully at the end of our lives, he's just glorified, that he's honored, and all the praise and the honor goes to him. So let's try to apply this in the last minute of this message. Is God calling you to something that you've said no to for a long time, for one reason or the other? Go back to the end of this and respond and say, yes, Lord. And remember, callings of God is not that everybody's going to be a pastor or everybody's going to be a missionary. Callings of God are in all facets of life. So whatever the Lord's putting on your heart through the power of the Holy Spirit, saying, okay, God, I'm going to step out. And as I step out, I know my message. It's Jesus Christ and him crucified. I know my promise that God uses weak and broken people for his glory. So let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you that you saved us by grace and you use us by grace. Lord, would you remind us of the power of the cross in our own lives as we take communion tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.